How does Christ execute the office of king? Christ, answer, Christ executes the office of king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. It's really that second part. The reason I quoted this is that second part where it talks about restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We see as an example of his kingly rule in restraining and conquering his enemies, ungodly rulers in the text we are going to look at today. The universe is a theocracy, not a democracy. And it has a king, and that king's name is Jesus. And he has all authority in heaven and earth now. And he is ruling to see his gospel go to the ends of the earth. I know you may be somewhat discouraged by the current political situation in our day. And I want to lift your heads above that this morning to focus on your king. Earthly rulers do not have the final say. They are not the ultimate rule. As our reading said from Psalm 2, I have set my king on my holy hill, on the throne. He reigns. Jesus is the king of kings. King over all the earth. And we get a glimpse into his rule as he deals with Herod Antipas, the first in our text. Verses 20 to 24. Herod is eaten by worms. Herod is judged. Herod is removed. What is the context? Well, we've seen all the way from the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus fulfilling His promises after His resurrection, meeting with His disciples, promising them that that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Why? To be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we saw that happen on the day of Pentecost. The church is empowered for witness. They begin to witness. The gospel is going forth. And from that time till this time in Acts the gospel is being resisted by wicked rulers it's being attempted to be stamped out and all it is doing is spreading it the wicked rulers in their effort to stamp out the gospel are just I've said this before like stomping a gas fire it just keeps flourishing because there is a king above them who is seeing to it that his gospel will go to the ends of the earth We saw the first persecutor rise up, aside from the Jewish leadership. We saw that in the apostles and them being arrested, set free by the angels and all of that going on. Uh, We've seen problems in the church and we've seen opposition by the rulers in Jerusalem. We saw a persecutor rise up in in the person of Saul of Tarsus and the king dealt with him. He converted him. He didn't kill him. Turned him into an apostle. We've seen him show back up working in and for the church. We've seen Peter with the revelation of bringing the Gentiles in. And we've seen another persecutor rise up in chapter 12. Herod, Antipas first. He's the king and, and under the Roman rule and in the Roman Empire. And he laid violent hands on the church. 
and killed James and was going to kill Peter, but the Lord set Peter free. They couldn't find him. He's chained the two soldiers with guards at the door, and they wake up the next morning. They're not supposed to be asleep, but they wake up the next morning, and there's nothing left but the chains. Peter's gone in answer to the prayers of the church. So that had to somewhat frustrate Herod, and he goes back to his government headquarters in Caesarea, and God is delivering his people, ruling and reigning through his son to set his gospel free or keep it free. It's never been in bondage. And in this passage today in 20 to 24, we'll see this. Trust Christ as king because you could say or he always restrains and conquers wicked rulers so that his gospel continues to spread and thrive. He always restrains and conquers wicked rulers so that his gospel continues to spread and thrive. Eyes higher than the earthly rulers. Eyes on him. Trust him. Know his purpose. Align with that purpose. And believe that he is always at work restraining and conquering the opposition that rises up to his gospel. God defends his gospel. Christ is king. And we see that happening in our text today. Well, in verses 20 to 21, we just say, trust Christ, point one, who restrains the wicked ruler. How's he restraining him? Well, look back in verse 20. It says, Herod was angry. So he's left. He's gone back to Caesarea. Not sure exactly how much time has passed, but he's gone from focused on the church and trying to stamp out the church to other governmental problems. He's in Caesarea and some sort of dispute has arisen with Tyre and Sidon. Up, They were ports up north from Caesarea and they were highly dependent upon uh, Herod's reign and using them as ports and maybe there was some sort of divide, maybe an embargo. We're not told. We don't need to know or we would have been told. But it says he was angry with Tyre and Sidon and there's a rift there. And they came to him with one accord. So this is serious. They're dependent upon him. They need his help. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, uh, that would be like um, the chief of staff in the White House. Okay, he's, he's more than just, you know, as the chamberlain, as the name implies, the one who watches over the, the bedroom. But he is like a chief of staff. And it says they, they persuaded him to have entry and they asked for peace. And they had somewhat reached some agreement of peace. And it says because their country was dependent on Herod for feud. See, what? look at Christ. What I want you to see, Christ is reigning. He is sovereignly ruling. And Herod has been distracted from his desire to destroy the church by geopolitical matters. His attention has had to go elsewhere. Away from the church. King's heart is in the hand of the Lord, right? He turns it wheresoever he will. But he uses means. And so he raises it. You see this in Scripture before. There'll be a king coming against Israel. Something will flare up at home and they'll have to go back home. And some of them end up dying at home. But Herod's mind has been turned. He's been restrained from continuing his persecution of the church because he has to deal with these other political matters. That is Christ restraining a wicked ruler. Restraining him by distraction. Restraining him by a dispute. Restraining him by the, the, the 
the annoyances of governing. But don't miss it. Christ is in control. He's defending His church. He's defending His gospel. And He's turning this wicked ruler's attention away from His church and pleasing the Jews and trying to stamp out the gospel to dealing with kingdom matters, which He has to deal with or Rome will come down upon Him. But He's distracted by this dispute and He's focused on settling this dispute and showing off His rule his reign, his pomp, he's the man. So he's distracted by this and he begins on the day appointed he's going to speak as they're ratifying this agreement, whatever it was to settle uh, this issue. And even Josephus uh, talks about this, this instance and, and verifies it. But it says in verse 22, on, on a, verse 21, on an appointed day Herod put on his royal robes. And, and Josephus tells us that they were made with silver and they, they shined in the sun. So it's like you just about need sunglasses to look at the dude. He's trying to be glorious. He puts on his royal robes and he sat upon his throne and he delivered a speech to them, an oration to them. Talking to them. Not enough to just sign the agreement or deal with the issue. He's going to put himself up front. Parade his authority. Try to be glorious. Shining in their eyes. Probably a good speaker. It would seem. But don't miss the fact that Christ is restraining the wicked ruler. By distracting him with other issues. He's sovereign. He's in control. Christ is. And over the world and over the things that happen and uses them for his purpose and he has distracted this ruler who's now focused on himself his position his kingdom and making things work out for him so it says that he's restrained by a distraction he's there giving a speech and then point two these are quick I mean we'll talk more about application there's not really much complicated in the text that we need to deal with Number two, trust Christ who conquers the wicked ruler. He's restrained him by distraction and now he will conquer him. He gives him over the sins of his own heart. Verse 22, watch this. Herod has spoken and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. The people are worshiping Herod. They are proclaiming his deity. They are in awe of him and bowing down to him and shouting this man is a god and he didn't do what peter did when peter went to cornelius's house and they started bowing down to him he's like dude get up just a man here nothing special no big deal or when when you see men bow down to angels and mistaking them for god you know they say mm -mm, don't worship me worship god Worship Christ. But these people are worshiping Herod. They are bowing down to him. They're proclaiming him a God. And he's eating it up. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He's eating it up. This, this royal robes that he's had made are doing exactly what he wanted them to do and making him seem glorious and his 
speech. Maybe it was a good speech. Who knows? Maybe he was a, a gifted orator or speaker. But the people are now worshiping him and he's not rejecting it. He's not restraining it. He's not giving glory to God. That's what the text says. Said they were worship they were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Implication. He's agreeing with that. He's eating that up. He's loving that. He's not rebuking that. He's not rejecting that. Immediately. Opposition being taken out. Rightly judged. Rightly judged for his sin. Strict justice on this sin. Think about Psalm 2. Careful rulers of the earth. Kiss the sun. Be careful about standing in his way. Opposing him. Seeking to stamp out his gospel. An angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give glory, God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. And he breathed his last. What is happening here? Herod, given over to his sin, become, making himself an idol, not giving glory to God, receiving worship, and he is judged. And he is taken out. His failure was to receive the glory, not to give glory to God, not to defer that to God. He owned the people's worship. And in justice, he was struck down. And it says, and I don't have any problem with this. Some people try to say, well, this must be figurative and it must be some sort of disease. And they try... It says he was eaten by worms. I'm good with that. God who can speak the universe into existence, who can uphold it by the word of his power, who can, who can create a great fish to swallow a man and keep him alive and deliver him back on the track he's supposed to be on, who can stop the sun in the sky, has no problem making a worm. I don't know if Herod had eaten bad dog food or what, but... He, he, and it says, Josephus confirms that he immediately began to have problems, gastric problems, pain. And he died, I think, four or five days later. <clears throat> Breathed his last is just a nice way to say he died. Careful rulers of the earth, pay attention to what you're doing. There is a king on the throne and it is not you. And if you oppose him, you will find yourself being judged, be it in this life or the next. But we see Christ as king taking care of his church, taking care of his gospel. And giving over a king to himself and justly judging him for his sin. He owes no one mercy. Or it wouldn't be mercy. He takes care of his opposition. And Herod is taken out. And don't miss verse 24. Herod is worshipped. Herod is judged. But the gospel continues to thrive. 
Look at verse 24. But, contrast, in contrast to him, he doesn't continue to thrive. He's eaten by worms. And then goes to be more food for worms. In the grave. But the gospel, the word of God increased and multiplied. What does that mean? I mean, the word of God itself didn't change, but it was effective it was going forth the gospel was going forth forth people were repenting and trusting in jesus in mass the enemy of the gospel has made no difference he's made it better which is what always happens the gospel continues to thrive even in times of trouble and listen i want to clarify this the gospel is what god is defending here And we've seen it in the life of James. Sometimes that means that Christians suffer and die, but the gospel still goes forth. Sometimes it means they're delivered, but the gospel still goes forth. Christians are persecuted, but the gospel still goes forth. God will defend His gospel until His gospel accomplishes His purpose to reach every tribe, tongue, and nation and bring a people to Christ who will be worshiping around His throne forever. The gospel continues to thrive. What? No human power. No human power can trump Christ's rule and stop His word. They've been trying for 2,000 years and even before that in the Old Testament. But nobody's been able to stop Him. And nobody ever will. Nobody's been able to find the chink in His armor or the chink in the gospel to show it's not true. People have been trying for 2,000 years and they've been unsuccessful They haven't been able to do it. You won't be able to do it. Resist it if you like. Eventually you'll end up in the same place as Herod. Standing and answering for your sins and under His judgment. There's a better way. God defends His glory. God defends His gospel. Listen, He doesn't prevent wicked rulers from ruling. In fact, he raises them up and he puts them down. And sometimes he raises up wicked rulers to be the hand of chastisement on his people. You see that all through the Old Testament. I mean, I said this, I think, last week or the week before. But Calvin said when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. This nation is under judgment. And rightly so. If God didn't judge America, he'd have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. But wicked rulers don't prevent him from ruling. And wicked rulers, yes, they can hurt Christians and other people, but they cannot prevent the spread of the gospel. Herod was impotent before Jesus. Satan is impotent before Jesus. Any other wicked ruler is impotent. They don't accomplish anything in their attempts to stop His gospel. I mean, think about China and what's going on in China and the persecution of the church in China. And the government can drive the church underground, but it can't drive it out of existence. It can't stop the gospel. The gospel just keeps popping up. Kids, you know the whack-a-mole game, right? They try to knock the gospel down and it just keeps popping up. You, you can't. 
stop. Jesus. Isaiah, he will accomplish all his purpose. His gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Wicked rulers do wicked things and wicked rulers are doing wicked things in this country right now. Wicked rulers are standing in opposition to Jesus right now and oh that they would read Psalm 2 and heed. But they are not and they will not stop His gospel. Now persecution they may engender might purify His church. There are a lot of people sitting in churches who don't know Jesus and just as much in opposition to Him as people running around the world. If you'll have Him as Savior but not as Lord, you don't know Him. But if you're trusting in Him as who He is, even with a weak faith, He will save you. So you see in this text, Christ restraining and conquering an enemy and seeing to it, verse 24, that the Word of God continues to increase and multiply. The church continues to grow. The kingdom is built. Souls are being saved. Churches are being planted. And that continues down to today. We're in Swansboro, North Carolina talking about Jesus as King. Wicked rulers can't succeed and haven't succeeded and won't succeed. Though Christ has done Just think about a little bit of application from this text. And if we were a Sunday school class, we'd march out all the details and do some more stuff like that. But there's one thing in here that we really want to look at a little bit and emphasize a little bit. But the first one is that Jesus is king. And I've said this over and over. Enemies of the gospel will be judged and destroyed. And Herod's judgment is a picture of the judgment that awaits all of the enemies of the gospel. Jesus is not a way to reconciliation with God. He's not a way to salvation. He's not a king. He is the king. He is the savior. And his gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe it. And stop worrying about some remote jungle and somebody there who hadn't heard and start worrying about yourself. You have heard. Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you con- <laughs> Yeah. Thumbs up up here. Are you placing your confidence in Him? Have you received Jesus as your Savior? Have you cried out to Him for salvation and trusted Him to answer? His Word tells us to flee from the wrath to come of which Herod's judgment is a picture. To do whatever. Mark says, give up anything you can. Anything that causes you to sin. Nothing is worth going to hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Hebrews tells us there's one life to live and then the judgment. You will not be reincarnated. You're not coming back as a mouse or a superhero. Or you, you, This is it for you. One life to live and then the judgment. And Herod's was brought to a close much quicker than he thought. He thought he would live on, reign on. Who knows? He might even thought he'd be much higher in the Roman Empire someday. But no, he set himself in opposition to the gospel and he was snuffed out. So Christ is king. He is reigning. This is a picture of how he restrains through means wicked rulers and conquers them through judgment. Sometimes quickly in this life, sometimes not until the end of his life, of this life. 
apart from repenting and coming to faith in Jesus, all wicked rulers and all wicked people will answer to him because he is king. Secondly, this, this is one that sadly we don't think much about. This is a lesson on how seriously God takes his glory. Because that's Herod's crime. He didn't give God the glory. And he was judged. What is the chief end of man? Catechism question. Summarizing what, what the Word says. We, were, we are here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We couldn't enjoy Him without His grace. His grace enables that glorifying and enjoying Him. But your purpose, you want to know why you're here? You're searching for yourself? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's to trust and rest in Jesus and live for His glory. There's only one God. And it is right for him to be zealous for his glory. Before if he deferred his glory to anyone else, he would be justifying idols and those things and those people that are not God. God is serious about his glory. Listen to this from this is from the Net Bible. Um, I encourage you to there's a lot of good notes in that, but pretty good translation in, in a lot of places. But the Net Bible, Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord. That is my name. I Now watch this. I will not share my glory with anyone else or the praise due me with idols. What's the first commandment? I mean, if you don't know the Ten Commandments, you need to know them. You can't be saved by keeping them. But they, you need to know that. It'll help you in your witness. Yet have no other gods before me. Why? There are no others. The rest are idols. He's the only God. So it's right for Him to demand our worship. To protect His glory. For Him to be the one who is glorified. He says, I will not share my glory with anyone else or my praise with idols. God is serious about His glory. Look at Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone call by my name, comma, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God owns the earth. He created it. He owns everyone in it. He created them. All created for His glory. Some in Christ line up with that and some don't. But He will not share His glory. His glory is a serious matter. His glory is a serious matter. Look at Isaiah 48, 9-11. Why does He say? Primarily for His name's sake. Look at this. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that you, I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake and for my own sake, I do it. When God repeats something. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I am to be 
God's, he, God is to be glorified as God because He is God. <laughs> he is the only God. The Creator of the heavens and the earth. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, fa- the, God who, the Trinitarian God who is the only true and living God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will not give my glory to another. Jesus talks about in Acts 17. The glory He shared with the Father before the ages. God will not give His glory to Herod. God will not give His glory to anything or anyone else. He will not give it to you. You as a creature, a creation of God, created in the image of God, have a responsibility to glorify Him. And we're born into this world unwilling and unable to do so. That's why Christ came to save us. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. The glory God demands. The perfection He demands. If you're going to save yourself, you're going to live up to the glory of God. You'll keep His law, His commandments. Please memorize those. It'll help you. I promise. It won't hurt you. You will keep His law in thought, word, and deed from cradle to grave. That's the only way you're going to live up to And none of us have. Only one, Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of His glory, but are responsible to glorify Him. And He's provided an answer in His Son who came to save His people. More on that in a bit. You see how serious, how right it is for God to be zealous about His glory? How good it is for us, for God to be zealous for His glory, to point us to Himself because He is the only true and living God? Forget foolishness, Oprah sprouts, and these other people sprout. It's right for God to be zealous for His glory. It's right because He is the only God. The source of blessedness. Herod thought he could be God. Like Satan. And he found out different. He found out Jesus is King. God is serious about His glory. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But here's another thing I want to point out. Listen to me. This is true. We, we live and think and talk like God is only glorified when He saves somebody. He's only glorified in mercy and grace. I'm telling you, He's glorified in justice and judgment as well. God is glorified in judgment. God was glorified in taking Herod out. He had already had far more breaths than he deserved. And he was using them in opposition. God is glorified in judgment as well as mercy. In justice as well as mercy. It's hard to grasp, isn't it? But He never does anything that is not just and true and righteous altogether. He never does anything that He's not worthy of praise for. He's worthy of praise for condemnation of sinners as well as salvation of sinners. Again, the Net Bible, Isaiah 5.16. The Lord who commands armies will be exalted when He punishes. The sovereign God's authority will be recognized when He judges. I'm trying to stretch our minds to embrace the fact that His justice is praiseworthy. 
I mean, everything's just. It's a just mercy and grace because of Christ by which we're saved. But it's a just condemnation. You know what every one of us deserve? If you haven't embraced this, you haven't grasped the gospel. Everyone in this room, kids, look at me. Every one of us deserve condemnation by God. We're born under condemnation. Inheriting the sin and corruption of nature from our father Adam. And we express that by living out sinfully. What you don't, don't say it's not fair. You don't want fair. What is just is that every one of us be condemned and God would be glorified in it. And if you don't think you deserve condemnation, you need... Memorize the law, please. Not to beat you down, instruct you. Because you hadn't kept one of those perfectly. All have sinned and fall short of His glory. Therefore, all deserve condemnation. But God, who is rich in mercy, He saves some. But He's glorified in both. It says the sovereign God's authority will be recognized when He judges and He will be exalted when He punishes. John Piper says this, God is always upholding and magnifying and communicating His glory in everything that He does in history. Everything that He does glorifies Him. Everything that He does is right and just and pure. He is glorified in judgment as, as well as in mercy. Number four. Praise God for this. God does not always judge on the spot. Like we see here with Herod. How much of Herod's sin had he passed over? God does not always judge on the spot. None of us would be here if he did. Thankfully, God, the Scripture describes Him, yes, as holy and righteous and just who will not overlook sin, too pure of eyes to even look on it with approval. But it also describes Him as long in the nose. That's a Hebrew figure of speech for long-suffering, patient, gracious, merciful, kind. That's why we're still here. If you're not a believer, listen to me, if you're not trusting in Christ, you have never glorified God in anything. It's not balancing your good and your bad. You don't have any good outside of Christ. All of our righteousness is filthy rags, Isaiah says. You haven't glorified Him a day in your life and yet you're still here. Why? Because he's long suffering and he's patient. And he not only calls on you, he commands you, Acts 17, to turn and trust in his son. Because there's coming a day when that same son will judge the world in righteousness. Don't wait. Don't take his patience and let it fuel presumption. I know I used to do that all the time. I got the, to grow up as a lost teenager and a lost 20-something. And you know what? I was raised in the church. I knew a little bit about the Bible. You know what I was always thinking in the back of my mind? I'm having too much fun now. I'll do that religion stuff when I get old. 
I was presuming I was going to get old. I was presuming I had more days. You may or may not. I start saying I'm not trying to scare you, but I am. But with God's truth, not, not just manipulation. But think about this. If you're not trusting Jesus, you haven't glorified Him in anything yet. And He's been patient with you. Turn and trust in Jesus. And listen to me, believer. If you're a believer, you do not perfectly glorify Him in anything you do yet. None of us, even as believers, keep His commandments in thought, word, and deed perfectly, do we? Anybody here? I'd like to hear from you if you do. There's one who did. And it's Jesus. That's why He is our salvation. God is patient. Listen, sometimes we glorify Him, Cindy brought it, only with words. We'll externally do things and say things because we know we should and that's what we should, but in here, it's not in here. Now, we, God knows when we do that and we know when we do that, but praise God for His grace and mercy and patience. But our duty is to glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to be focused on that, that first catechism question. On our main reason we're created is to glorify God. We are to be looking toward that and striving for that and depending upon His strength to help us grow in that. Being quick to run to His throne of grace when we fail to do that. But God's Word calls on us to live for His glory. But He does not praise His name. He doesn't automatically and, uh, and quickly and right away judge that sin. He's working out His purpose. But I'll tell you something He does do on the spot. He saves on the spot. He delivers on the spot. The Word of God promises you that if you will turn and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven. You will be clothed in His righteousness. You will be adopted into God's family as His child. You will have a new heart that will want then to glorify Him. God saves on the spot those who trust and call on Jesus. Jesus always glorified the Father. Isaiah 49.3, speak, speaking of the servant to come, primarily speaking of Jesus. It says this, You are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. Adam failed, Israel failed, but the true in Israel in whom we would be grafted, He came and He glorified the Father. He always glorified the Father. John, he says so. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth. You want to know what a life that glorifies God looks like? Read the Gospels. Perfect life. Perfect glory. He said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. What was Jesus' work? He's the mediator of the covenant. He's the one who came to save His people. That's what His name means. You know, you know what Hebrew for Jesus is? Yeshua. What name is that? Joshua. Picture of Him, Old Testament. Anyway. But his name means the Lord is salvation. 
His work was to come and to live for us. To fully fulfill all righteousness for us. To keep God's law out of love for the Father. Out of love for His glory. Out of love for His people. He fulfilled all righteousness by fulfilling the law. And deserving only blessing, He took our sin upon Himself and He died to pay the penalty for that sin. He went to the cross as a sacrifice for us. Suffering the physical agony, yes, but the spiritual agony was far worse than that. He took the condemnation we deserve. He took our eternal hell upon Himself, if you want to conceptualize it that way. And on the cross, He said, it is finished, paid in full. He did not go to hell and pay any debt to Satan or any such nonsense as that. He satisfied God's justice for God's people. And then He dwelt under the power of death for a time and the third day He raised from the grave proving it all true. Spent over 40 days with His disciples shoring them up, teaching and training, and then He ascended to heaven. And He sat down at the right hand of God. And the Scripture says in Hebrews and 1 Corinthians and other places, He will stay seated until all His enemies are made His footstool. Has He subdued you to Himself so that you trust and rest in Him? Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone? Don't wait till the day when you will have to forcefully bow and confess Jesus as Lord. Turn and trust in Him today. But His work was to come at just the right time to do everything necessary to save His people. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, in other words, when just the right time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, virgin birth, born under the law, His own law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. Romans 10, 11 to 13, the Scripture says, Everyone, who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing His, rich, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For watch this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who turns and trusts in Jesus, even with a weak faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's the one in whom you're trusting. Even with a weak faith, God did that and He receives that because it connects us to His Son. The Son is the basis of our salvation. We are dead in sins and the Gospel comes into our life and the Spirit grants us life and calls us to, to faith in Christ. And, and being new, we come. Being born again, we come and we trust in Jesus. We're united to Him, declared righteous because of Jesus, adopted into the family of God, and He begins at that point growing us in grace or making us like Jesus. All that happens. Logical priority, but it happens quick. But I just want to end with a question and I'll read a scripture and I'll be done. Are you resisting Christ like Herod? Are you trusting Him and resting in Him like Peter? Previous chapter, not this one. I mean, you read Peter's life. He's not a perfect person either, even after he's converted. What's your attitude towards Christ and His salvation? If you are refusing Jesus and you continue to refuse Jesus, Herod's judgment is a picture for you of when people have to answer for their own sin before God. 
But if you are trusting in Jesus, like I said, even with a weak faith, you can know that you are forgiven of all your sins. That all of your sins are washed off of your record and His righteous record is given to you so that when the Father looks, He sees His Son. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The publican, the tax collector said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said he went home justified. The true king rules and will rule until all his enemies are his footstool. Herod is a negative example. His gospel will go to every tribe, language, people, and nation. And then he will come again. And I want to leave you with a picture of this king from Revelation chapter 19. And then I will pray. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one who is sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. John chapter 1. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the conquering king. Trust and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, be at work in each of our hearts to recognize how far we fall short of your glory. As believers, Lord, how much we are thankful for your grace and for Jesus living and dying for us and being raised for us, for giving us salvation as a free gift and for the promise that you will finish the work in us and that someday when we depart from this life or Christ returned, we will be completely set free from sin. We will be always glorifying you. And then those who don't know you, Lord, help, us, help them to see the fear of not glorifying you. Not that they just might be afraid, but that they might turn from self, from sin, from loving this world and this life and the sin that's in it to loving Christ and trusting Him and receiving Him as Savior. Lord, save and sanctify Your people. Bless and build Your church. Continue to send forth Your gospel to the ends of the earth. We know that You will do it. God, we give You praise and thanks. We ask for these things and we trust you for them. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.